Well, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, what a pleasure to be here with you this evening on the campus of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm delighted and uh, honored to be with you. My wife, Kathy, is with me. And uh, it's actually not my first time on campus. Uh, Y'all hosted ETS a few years ago. I don't remember what year that was, 2010 or 11 or 12. Anybody remember? I don't know what year it was. Uh, But I I came here that year and gave a paper on Joshua and uh, really enjoyed touring the campus at that time and uh, brought one of my daughters with me, Sarah, and uh, we found that little tea shop downtown. I don't remember the name of it, uh, but we had lunch there and she put on a, they have a trunk where you can pull out uh, uh, Victorian outfits and she dressed up and we had a nice lunch, so... Uh, so what a, what a wonderful town you're in, and uh, we appreciate the hospitality uh, that we've already been shown. Uh, I'm going to move around, uh, if that's okay, and, uh, and drink coffee and stuff as we talk. So uh, Dr. Thomas told me we have about an hour. So uh, we're here to talk tonight about... Um, a site that I have been obsessed with for, oh, since about 1992. I, um, um, and it's a site on Mount Ebal, and the site, of course, is connected or may be connected with the account in the book of Joshua, chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. And I want to uh, read the text to you and just say a word about the text, and then we'll talk about the site. Uh, Joshua 8, 30-35, Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of unhewn stones on which no iron tool has been used. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed offerings of well-being. And there, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, alien as well as citizen, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark in front of the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, blessings and curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the aliens who resided among them. So here we have the account of the building of a great altar on Mount Ebal. And this is, of course, uh, a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 27, verses 4 through 8, where Yahweh commanded Moses to build this structure. So this is when the Israelites come up out of the 40 years of wilderness wandering. They're in the Transjordan, and Moses gives his final discourses uh, set down in the book of Deuteronomy. And as part of that, he says, when you get across the Jordan River, one of the first things you need to do is head up to Mount Ebal. I want you to build a monumental altar there and renew the covenant at that location. 
So according to Joshua 8, uh, this, this purports to be the fulfillment of the command to Moses in Deuteronomy 27. All right, so Joshua built this altar of uncut stones and offered uh, the olah, the burnt offering, and the shlemim, the peace offering, uh, at this site. And in addition, uh, he wrote some things. He copied uh, onto the stones the law of Moses. Now, uh, uh, okay, and according to the text, some of the Israelites stood on Mount Gerizim, some of them stood on Ebal, and the text says that uh, Shechem uh, lay between them. Okay, and the Deuteronomy passage adds some details that are not in the Joshua passage. Uh, It claims that the texts were shellacked with plaster uh, in the construction of the altar. That's an interesting detail that we'll come back to a little later. Um, Now, the location of the ceremonies, you can see the map uh, up here, the traditional understanding of the geography uh, has these two mountains, Mount Ebal, you can see there, and Mount Gerizim to the south, with Shechem located between the two. Uh, Shechem is, of course, modern-day Nablus, uh, and this is in the West Bank, so this is not a real uh, easy area <laughs> to get to right now. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, that's the location. And this location, of course, is in the heart of the highlands, which is the place where Israel began its settlement. Uh, Archaeological surveys have shown that the earliest settlements are in the heart of the hill country in the tribal territories allotted to Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, uh, let me say a word here. Uh, I first began to get interested in Ebal uh, back in 92. I was in... uh, the master's program, and I understand we have some master's students here uh, from an archaeology class, uh, so glad you're here. And uh, I was taking my first master's level class on the book of Joshua, and I had a wonderful professor uh, uh, named Rodney Cloud. Uh, Regretfully, he's never, to my knowledge, published anything, (laughs) but he was one of the greatest professors of all time. Uh, and my little book, How Israel Became a People, is dedicated to him. But in any case, in that course in 1992, as we went through the book of Joshua, when we covered Joshua 3, the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan, he gave us an article called Following the Pottery Trail by an Israeli archaeologist named Adam Zertal, And uh, then when we got to Joshua 8, uh, 30 through 35, talking about Ebal, he gave us an article Zertal had published in 1985 uh, that I'll talk about in a few minutes. So so I began to learn about this uh, fascinating Israeli archaeologist um, in 1992. So hold that thought, I'll come back to it. Zertal um, launched in 1979 or thereabouts, the most, in my opinion, the most significant archaeological survey that's ever been conducted in the modern history of Israel. It's the survey of Manasseh, and it ran from about 1980 until just, I don't remember the publication date of the last volume, but the reports of the survey are published in five massive volumes 
which very few people in the States have seen. They're only available in Hebrew. Uh, but the fifth volume was just published a year or two ago, so now it's about, about this thick all total. <laughs> and there's never been a survey like it. So they surveyed the Manassite territory foot by foot, on foot, not from the back of a jeep. They, they did it on foot and literally discovered hundreds and thousands of sites, almost 500 sites dating to the Iron Age I, 1200 to 1000 B.C., and very few of these uh, have been excavated, just a tiny, uh, literally a handful. Uh, so there's just tons and tons of potential. New, the, the survey itself generated tons of new data, but there's tons and tons of new data that can be generated out of the study of that data through excavation and so on. Uh, so an incredibly profound piece of work and Zertal um, is an interesting guy. He, he's not real well known. He stays in the background. He doesn't seek the camera uh, like Israel Finkelstein, whom I'm guessing all of you know <laughs> because he loves the camera. Uh, I, I shouldn't have said that. I'm on film. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, but Zertal, uh, you know, he's done this incredible piece of work. It, it will uh, gain more and more um, uh, notoriety as time goes by. Anyway, I want to talk about one particular site that he discovered. If you know anything about archaeology, when you do a surface survey, you're walking along the surface of the ground, finding uh, ceramics that have worked their way to the surface. And you collect these and you draw conclusions about what might lie under the surface of the ground based on what you've found above ground, okay? And so when you do a survey, you want to periodically do a, a, an excavation as a test, to, as a control for the survey, for the conclusions you're reaching in your survey, if that makes sense. Well, in 1979, in the survey of the Manasseh, in the early days of the survey, when they were on the second slope of the northern summit of Mount Ebal, they found this uh, huge pile of stones here. And in archaeological terms, this is called a cairn, C-A-I-R-N. A cairn is not just a random uh, collapse of stones. It's uh, a piling of stones together in a mound. Uh, typically, a cairn is, has buried something. It's covering something up. So they found this huge cairn uh, in about 79, and Zertal decided that he would use this as a test excavation for this quadrant of the survey of Manasseh. And so in 1982, uh, rather, they began excavating this site. And uh, after about three seasons of excavation, this is what it looked like. You can see architecture is beginning to take shape there. Uh, you can see the human figures standing over here for size reference. Uh, but you can see the architecture. Some kind of a monumental building began to emerge from this site. All right. Now, at the end of the excavations in 1987, Judith Deckel, who's uh, uh, an archaeological artist, she made this uh, preliminary drawing of the layout of the site. And you can see that there's a central structure here at Ibal, 
which that's going to be the topic of our conversation. But it uh, is surrounded by a very low wall that encircles the entire site. And then the interior of the site is subdivided. And uh, uh, so you can see it's an isolated site on a high mountain with this single building in its center. All right. Well, uh, when they finish the excavation, one of the things you do, <coughs> excuse me, one of the things you do to establish a date in your site is you dig something called a foundation trench. If you've ever had a home built uh, and you go around the construction site and you look under the foundation, what are you going to find under the foundation of a new home? A, ditch. a, a what? A ditch. Uh, okay, a ditch. But what's going to be in that ditch? Cigarette butts, yeah, Coke bottles, right? <laughs> I mean, really, when construction workers lay the foundation for a site, you're going to find the detritus of, I mean, they live, you know, they're living while they're working. So they're smoking cigarettes, drinking things, and those things end up in or around the foundation. So this is one of the key ways that we date an archaeological site is you dig a, a foundation trench you, you, uh, under the edge of the wall uh, at bedrock, and that'll give you the type of data you need to establish the, the foundation date for the site. Okay, so in the foundation trench at Ebal was this beautiful little scarab. Of course, the picture makes it look huge. It's only about this big, <laughs> uh, but it has this uh, beautiful geometrical pattern on it that, as you can see, it's got a four-petal rosette in it, and uh, between the petals are four branches, and hanging off of each of the branches is an Egyptian cobra. And uh, this is an extremely rare design. There are only five known parallels for this scarab. Uh, the guy who's done the research on this is a, an Israeli scholar named Baruch Brandel. He's the uh, librarian, um, I'm thinking at the IES, uh, uh, but in any case, he's in Israel. And he says that based on these parallels, they all date to the reign of Ramses II uh, or the 19th dynasty. So it fixes a foundation date for the Ebal site sometime in the 13th century, probably around 1230 B.C. So that's the beginning of the site. Incidentally, I'm not going to get into this here because of the time, but they're actually... Uh, two strata at the site. The one founded in 1230 is uh, a six-foot diameter hole in the ground w with uh, a surface that was used for sacrifice. There was some kind of a building there. Uh, we don't know what it looked like because it was dismantled when they built this big structure in Iron One. And then adjacent to the, the, uh, uh, the, the circular installation was a four-room house. So it was some kind of a rustic site. Uh, there was not an altar there as far as we can tell, but this installation where they sacrificed on bedrock uh, with a ring of stones, lots of burned ash and bone remains in that. Uh, remains of a wall there, so there was some kind of a building associated with it, and then a four-room house nearby, probably for uh, maybe the priests who managed the site or something like this. But the big structure I've shown you was built on top of that around 1200, and that 
exist until about 11.30. Okay, so uh, here's the scarab. That uh, is part of the way the data is established. Of course, other uh, pieces of data go into that as well. Now, it gets exciting. In about 1985, <coughs> Zertal published his first art well it really wasn't his first article uh, but he published an article in the biblical archaeology review is everybody familiar with the bar uh, a few of you okay it's a great magazine but it's a uh it's a popular magazine it's not a scholarly journal and uh if if you're in any science you know if you're a medical doctor for example you're not going to publish your findings in psychology today, your, your first report won't be in psychology today, it'll be in the Journal of the American Medical Association, right? And then later you'll follow it up with a popular article, right? Well, Zertal, uh, he did publish a scholarly article in, I don't remember the year on it now, 83 or 84 or something like that, uh, in an obscure German publication. <laughs> so, I mean, it was in English, but it was in this obscure German publication. So nobody saw the article. And then in 85, Herschel Shanks convinced him to publish this, this big article in Barr. So everyone thought that he had rushed to publication in a tabloid journal. And he was heavily criticized for, for, for this, although it really wasn't true. He did publish the report before that. But he published this article, and the title of the article, my guess is Herschel picked the title of the article. <laughs> Has Joshua's altar been found on Mount Ebal? That was the title of the article. Well, uh, if you, does anybody remember this? Did anybody see that article? No? This is the one Dr. Cloud gave us in 92. Did, you've seen it? Okay. Well, people just... Uh, criticized Zertal. You know, they came out of the woodworks criticizing Zertal. Aharon Kempinski uh, argued, he published an article the same, uh, in the same issue. Herschel invited him to publish the counter, uh, the article countering Zertal's thesis, and he published this article arguing that the structure was not an, ar uh, an altar at all, but a collapsed watchtower. Uh, Deaver gave a lecture at the Smithsonian in uh, 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 1992. Zertal's article had been published in 85. And uh, he gave a lecture at the Smithsonian. Uh, I, did, I was not at the lecture, but I got a tape of it. And Deaver, he was lecturing on the highlands. His lecture was called How to Tell a Canaanite from an Israelite. And he was talking about the settlement process. And when he got to this point in his lecture, he literally burst out laughing and uh, ridiculed, uh, you know, this ridiculed Zertal and the idea that this may have been Joshua's altar. Uh, and he jokingly dismissed it as a barbecue site. He said, "That's what. That's all this is. It's an out. It's a place where families went on afternoons and you know cooked things and uh, so on." Um, so the, 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 these are just some samples. There were other people who came out. Anson Rainey wrote a short article in 1986, and it, I, I wouldn't say this if Anson Rainey was still alive. He died just a year or two ago, but he was extremely critical of Zertal, and he accused Zertal of fabricating the whole thing just for sensationalism, just to get media attention. It was just um, 
Anyway, so lots, lots of uh, uh, acerbic criticism. <laughs> well, hitting the reverse button and going back, I had gotten these handouts in 1992, <clears throat> done my master's, took several classes, read some of Zertal's stuff. I was not an archaeologist. I was headed into the pastorate. And so I headed on into the pastorate, started in the pastorate in 1990. And in 95, I was in a full-time pastorate out in East Tennessee and uh, uh, never thought I would do anything besides that. <clears throat> I did subscribe to BAR. Uh, I developed a love for the Old Testament. So in 95, an issue of BAR came out, and it had an advertisement in it. This was the January dig issue. And it had an advertisement from Zertal. He was doing this new dig at a site called El Ahuat. And uh, uh, he was looking for young people with strong backs. Now, this was a, this was a long time ago. I was buff back then, you know. <laughs> but, um, so I wrote him a letter and said, Dr. Zertal, I'm, I have no archaeological experience, but could I come work with you? Uh, for the summer uh, in 95, and he said, come on, love to have you. So I went over and started digging with him as a volunteer and just fell in love with it. And I went back every summer, uh, 95, 96, 97, 98, until our first daughter was born. But the significance of that is that El Ahuat was a field school, and so two nights a week we would have lectures. And whenever Adam lectured, he would talk about Mount Ebal. <laughs> and you know, it, we, 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 there would be a fire going, and it would be dark, and he'd be standing there with the, the shadows dancing. You know, it was just very romantic, uh, you know, and we're all sitting there. And he's talking about the battle for the Bible, and did Joshua really build an altar on Mount Ebal? So I became fascinated with this site. And in 98, we were sitting around the fire one night, and I said, Adam, what if I were to go back and do a Ph.D. and concentrate on the settlement and write a dissertation on Mount Ebal? And he said, don't do it. It will ruin your career. Because <laughs> in a way, uh, it, it had had an adverse effect on his career. But I became obsessed, and uh, I, I, I couldn't let it go, and that's what I did. And the book's back there. Um, but so uh, th this is the side, and this was the scholarly response. It was not positive. Um, Zertal was accused of being biased. <clears throat> All right, many people accuse Zertal of setting out to prove Joshua eight thirty through thirty five. And uh, as I got to know Adam over the years, it became very very clear that there's no way that was possible. Uh, he was raised on a kibbutz. All his life he's been on the same kibbutz, kibbutz and Shemer, and it's one of the secular um, agnostic or atheistic. I mean, it's not a religious community. It's a secular kibbutz. He was raised uh, a-religiously, and then when he did his schooling, he went to Tel Aviv, the most liberal <laughs> Uh, university in Israel. So he was taught that this was all myth. He had no axe to grind uh, at all uh, with this. So the conclusions he reached about it uh, were conclusions based on the data. 
he initially concluded this that the Ebal site was a farmstead. And uh, so he only changed as the architecture began to become more evident and, and he felt like the data forced him to change his conclusion. But anyway, let's look at the data. Um, in 2007, uh, I managed to get to Ebal, uh, and it was not an easy process. The, again, it's in the West Bank, and uh, the, after the site was finished being dug, for just a couple of years, they ran tour buses out there <clears throat> pretty regularly. But in 2000, before I, <clears throat> excuse me, before I started my PhD, uh, uh, there was an intifada launched, and in the in the midst of that intifada, there was an Asian tour bus that went out there. And one of the tourists was shot in the head by a sniper and killed. And so in 2000, they shut the site down and would not let anyone go there again. Uh, and it took a lot of, um, well, when I started the Ph.D. in 2002, I immediately started trying to plan a trip out there. And every year the Army would cancel it. <laughs> So finally, in 2007, there was a very religious uh, colonel in the Israeli Defense Force who found out what I was trying to do, and he believed in Ebal, and he wanted people to know about Ebal. So he said, I'm going to make it my mission to get this Hawkins guy <laughs> out to the site. And so in 2007, they actually launched uh, an expedition to get me out to the site and uh, it was kind of funny. I took my dad with me. He's a photographer. Uh, I wanted him there just for the experience, but also to, to do the photography. And here we are by the infamous wall uh, separating the West Bank, you know, <clears throat> and there's a sniper tower you can see. And here we are loading up into uh, armored cars. This is Adam uh, Zertal with me. You can see he's on crutches. Uh, interesting story to that, but we don't have time. Uh, we had tanks with us. I mean, <clears throat> um, we had a procession of armored cars and tanks <laughs> going out to the site. It was kind of unnerving. Uh, but in any case, as you head out to the site, we pass right over Nablus. That's Nablus down in the valley. That's Shechem. Um, uh, 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 and this is uh, right across from the valley is Mount Gerizim. Uh, there is still a community of Samaritans there. I've not been to the top myself, but they are the only surviving community of Jews who still practice animal sacrifice. And I'm told they're very welcoming that you can go uh, up there and, and uh, observe the ceremony. I, I know the students from Jerusalem University College do that. They take groups up there. But in any case... So this uh, is Nablus. Um, as we approach the site, you can see the wall encircling the site here, and you can see the central structure there in the midst of it. It's just a beautiful panorama, very open space. Uh, here we are getting a little closer. Again, you can see the uh, architecture there. When we pulled up uh, to the site, it's encircled, or, or, or they had begun to build a fence around it, and right in front of this fence was a, sort of a shed where an attendant would collect money. They envisioned that this would be a huge 
you know, piece of the tourist industry in Israel and that people would be going out there by the droves to see it and paying money and now it's all grown over with weeds and um, no, nobody goes there uh, but the Mount Ebal altar. Uh, when we go inside, here's the structure itself and you can see the human figures standing over here. It gives you an idea of the size comparison. The base of this thing is 29 by 32. So it's quite substantial, and this ramp in the front, which I'll uh, say a little more about in a few minutes, it's 22 feet long going down at about a five-degree angle uh, in front of the structure. All right. Uh, there, there's another shot. That's a little bit better. It gives you a sense of the uh, magnitude of this thing. Very, very substantial. Um, now, the question is, what is it? <laughs> What is this building, this huge building out here on the side of this mountain? What is it? Well, there are a number of possibilities, and uh, some of the critics that I mentioned to you have suggested maybe it's a farmstead or a house on a farmstead, uh, maybe it's a watchtower, things like this. And I want to just show you some things we might could compare it to uh, before we talk about religious ideas. This is a shot of uh, Isbet Sarta, the village of Isbet Sarta. For those of you in the archaeology class, you're probably familiar with this type of layout. When the Israelites went, first began to settle in the highlands, they did not build fortified uh, cities. Uh, you know, it's kind of like if you're driving through the country, uh, old, an old country village, you're not going to find... Uh, a massive viaduct with huge pylons holding it up. I mean, that's evidence of governmental construction, right? Same thing in the highlands. When the settlers first began to go into the highlands, um, they went as semi-nomadic pastoralists. And they essentially circled the wagons with the way they built their houses. These houses are uh, built side by side, and the backs of the houses form the city wall. I put it in parentheses because it's not really a wall. It's just like the circling of the wagons. The backs, you know, the sides of the wagons are forming the exterior. That's really no defense, right? Houses are the same way. They're not, they don't provide defensive walls. This is a typical village design. Isbet Sarta is one of the earliest Israelite villages we know about. Um, that's not what we see at Mount Ebal. Right? We see a low, what I would call a low ephemeral wall. It's too low even to keep sheep in or out. I mean, it's a low ephemeral wall. Uh, it's simply there to demarcate space or to delineate you know, some kind of function for the space with the structure in the center of it. So it doesn't have this village design. Uh, as the Israelites sedentarized in the highlands, they began to fill up the space inside those uh, cities with structures, and you can see this is a later phase at I, and uh, you can see the buildings are just all hodgepodge. They're built every which way. This is called an agglomerated village where the structures are all just a mess, <laughs> right? Uh, so as, as a town develops, if you don't have a city planner, you get an agglomerated village. <laughs> All right? uh, but again, that's not what we find at Ebal, right? Ebal, again, a, a low ephemeral wall with a structure in the center. Um, 
What about a, uh, an Israelite house? Could the Ebal structure be a house? Well, we have a single architectural style of house that predominates in ancient Israel. It's called the four-room house. Again, some of you might have heard of the four-room house. And it has a very standard design. It has a long room in the center that tends to be made of packed earth. And then it'll have two side rooms that uh, are typically or often uh, paved with cobblestones. And then in the back, you'll have a lengthy room that's often used for storage. These things tend to, the back room tends to be uh, like at Tel Alumairi. It's just covered up with collard rim jars, so you put those uh, back there. Uh, in these houses, uh, I know some of you are familiar with them. Uh, animals would often be stabled on these side rooms, and in the center you'd often have a hearth or a series of hearths, uh, so you'd do your cooking there in the center, animal stable on the side, and living quarters on the second floor. Heat rises, so you got your automatic heater system <laughs> there. Uh, okay, uh, and again, this is a very predictable house style. We find it at Tel El Nazbe, Chatzor, Tel El Farah, and so many other sites. All right, that's, again, not what we find at Ibal. Uh, at, we'll look at a close-up of the Ibal architecture here in just a second. Um, what about a military tower? <clears throat> All right. Well, military towers, and I'll say a little bit more about this because this has been probably the most common interpretation of the Ebal structure. Um, so I'll g give an extra word or two uh, to it. What about towers in the Iron Age? Well, we don't have any <laughs> in the Iron Age one. All right, the Iron Age one runs from 1200 to 1000 BC. All right, this is generally associated with the early Israelite settlement, or at least the sedentarization. Some people would put the settlement earlier, uh, or the Israelite influx earlier, but the sedentarization is primarily in the 13th century, the settling down. And during this 200-year window, we don't have any towers. Um, we don't have any towers from anybody, not just the Israelites. We don't have them from the Canaanites or the Hittites in this geographical region. Uh, you all know there was a, um, a collapse of the empires at the end of the late Bronze Age, and the fallout of that is that the Iron Age I is kind of a dark ages. And up here in the highlands, there just are no towers. <laughs> uh, all right, The earliest known Iron Age fortifications that we get date to the Iron II, beginning at 1000 B.C. and later. All right, And these are at sites like the ones I mentioned here. Until very recently, there were no known towers at all in, uh, uh, in Manasseh or Ephraim. So the earliest Israelite settlement, no known towers at all. Um, we have... Just a handful that have recently been discovered in the survey of Manasseh, and they're situated down in the Jordan Valley, and, uh, but they date to the Iron II, 1000 B.C. and later. All right, these are just uh, some schematic drawings of these towers. There are three of them found in the Jordan Valley. Kirbet S. Shock, and you see it's a round tower, okay? Uh, here's the second one, Kirbet El Mahruch, and uh, again, you see it's a round tower, <laughs> uh, 
And here's the third one, uh, Rum Abu Mukher. Uh, it's also a round tower. So the earliest tower design dates to the Iron II, and it's round. <laughs> it's interesting. If you know anything about Ammonite archaeology, you know that their tower systems burgeon in the Iron II, and they're all round. Uh, it's possible they may have picked that design up from these towers, which are very close to the Jordan River. Uh, here's the map here. You can see... These towers are clustered here close to the Jordan River Road, which parallels the north-south uh, uh, line of the Jordan River there. But the earliest pottery at these sites dates to the 10th century, around the time of Solomon, and uh, the latest uh, pottery dates down into the 9th century. So uh, it looks like these may possibly have been constructed by Solomon as part of a defense network to control uh, traffic and trade in the eastern Manasseh uh, desert. But um, the point of showing you all that, though, is to say that uh, we don't have towers in the Iron One. The few that have been discovered uh, uh, don't date to the Iron One. They date to the Iron Two, and they're round, not square like the structure we have at Ebal, okay? So towers did exist in the Middle and Late Bronze Ages, um, but never as freestanding units. They're always part of buildings or uh, fortification systems. We don't have them existing as freestanding units, okay? No examples at all of fortifications or temples from Iron Age One, and uh, they're just not built in Israel during this period. So even though some people continue to insist that the Ebal structure is a tower, there just are no parallels for that. It, it just doesn't, uh, I don't think it washes. Okay. Um, what this gets us to, we've ruled out a farmstead, we've ruled out a four-room house, we've ruled out towers. The only thing left is a possible cultic function. Okay, looking at the parallels for that. And what I want to do in the few minutes we have left, <coughs> uh, this, this hour is going too fast. Somebody needs to slow the clock down for us. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, okay, I think there are a number of factors that suggest a cultic nature for this site. I'm going to try to uh, share these with you without moving too quickly. If I go too fast, just tell me and I'll slow down. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to list them here, and then we're going to look at each one in just a little bit of detail. So this is just a list. We have at Ebal more than 50 what we'll call installations. I'll show you pictures of these in just a second. But these are installations that contain uh, animal bones, ashes, and or pottery. Again, more than 50 of these. The nature of these bones is of a special, it's a special nature to these bones. They are the prescribed sacrificial animals from the Torah. All right. We have donkeys, horses, pigs, carnivores, and gazelles. All of these things are absent at Ebal. Okay. Many of these animal species are uh, prevalent in the highlands, but they're absent at this site. Okay. Uh, we also have a peculiar feature among the animal remains at the site. There is a higher percentage of four parts, okay, which I'll explain the significance of that in a few minutes. 
The pottery at Ebal uh, is a specialized type of pottery. I would call it, uh, I mean, the pieces are not particularly fancy, but they're exotic models that uh, suggest they're not for ordinary usage. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, the location of the site, it's an isolated site on a prominent mountain, and then the corners of the main structure are oriented toward the compass points, something that's typical of cultic sites in the ancient Near East. And then finally, the architecture of the main structure uh, looks like an altar. <laughs> I'll show you that too. Uh, okay, so let's look at uh, each of these things for a few minutes. All right. <clears throat> this is a drawing by uh, a guy named Lean Rittmeyer. He's an archaeological uh, artist, wonderful artist. If you've looked at any popular materials on archaeology, I'm sure you've seen drawings uh, by him. Uh, and this, uh, after I wrote my book, I hired him to make a reconstruction of the Ebal site based on all the data, and this is what he produced, and the publisher inadvertently left it out of the book. <laughs> so, so it's not in there. <laughs> But it was supposed to be, when you open it, it was supposed to be in the, the cardboard, you know, I don't, there's a name for that spread, I don't remember what it is, but it was supposed to be there. Anyway, uh, beautiful drawing, I have a commentary on Joshua coming out, and it, it'll be in there. So, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get it out. Uh, but it, it's a beautiful drawing. Um, you can, again, you see his human figure here, and it just, you know, this thing is massive. I mean, this is just huge. But you can see these little installations. These are the installations, and you can see these are uh, these two sort of courtyards here on either side of the ramp. This pointer is not working too good. There's the ramp. Uh, you have a courtyard on each side, and these installations are inside and in various locations outside. And what these are is the inhabitants at the site, they would just dig out a shallow hole, and then they would shellac the soil in the hole with plaster and put a ring of stones around it. So they're, you know, they're intentional, intentionally designed. And then they would take uh, remains from ashes, burned bones, and they would put them in a ceramic vessel and deposit that in the installation, almost as if it was like a secondary offering or something. If they're making offerings on the central structure, it's almost like these are secondary offerings in these installations. But again, more than 50 of these around the site. The remains in, in the installations and in the pottery vessels deposited in the installations are special. Again, donkeys, horses, pigs, carnivores, gazelles, they're all absent at Ebal. And this is significant because gazelle and pig particularly are very prevalent in the highlands of Manasseh, okay? Uh, so the fact that they're absent is, is very suggestive Okay. Another thing I mentioned to a minute ago is the proportion of remains from four parts is higher at Ebal than at other Iron Age one sites. And this is very significant because the Torah says that the Israelites sacrificed the right foreleg and gave the hind leg to the priest. 
So what we have in the material remains seems to mirror that injunction from the Torah. This is an interesting point. Um, some people have heard this and said, wow, are you doctoring the data somehow? <laughs> or, you know, this just it seems to be such a close correlation. But the same phenomena is being found at uh, Dan. And this wonderful guy named Jonathan Greer, uh, who has just published a book by Brill called Feasting at Dan. Or no, no, no. It's called Dinner at Dan. <laughs> and uh, it's a revision of his doctoral dissertation. He's on staff at Dan. And he has spent several years <clears throat> processing the bone remains at Dan and... Um, uh, his Ph.D. is in archaeology with an emphasis in zooarchaeology. He trained under the famous Brian Hesse, uh, who was down at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and he was the bone man at a number of sites all over Israel. So Jonathan Greer is very much an expert in this. And this is what he's found at Dan. All of the, you know, there's a great altar in Area T at Dan. Same exact uh, animal remains there all uh, predominant four parts, uh, the type of animals reflect the uh, Torah injunctions and so on. Okay, so we're seeing this happen at other sites uh, also. Okay, uh, the pottery at Ebal, uh, again, it's nothing fancy. Israelite pottery is, is very rustic. Um, some people have thought Maybe that's because these people are poor. I think it's probably to reflect an egalitarian ideology. They don't, they don't do uh, um, ostentatious pottery. Uh, everybody's got the same type of pottery. But in cultic settings, they tend to have different types of pottery, just like, you know, we do the same thing. I mean, if you go into a church, you'll find... Um, uh, like an Episcopal church, you'll find a, a paten and a chalice, right? A, a plate for serving the elements, a, cha a chalice. You know, in the Baptist church, we have a communion tray. You don't find those types of vessels in somebody's home, right? Uh, these are for cultic use, <laughs> right? And we have other types of things. Uh, one that's near and dear to my heart as a pastor is the offering plate, <laughs> you don't find that in somebody's home, right? It's, you know, you find that, you know you're in a cultic environment, right? Uh, <laughs> the offering plate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna but so th this this uh, type of pottery it predominates at the ball side. It's a three-handled jar jug, and you can see it's got a lug handle up by the collar, and then two lug handles on the side. Uh, it's not fancy, but it's different from what's used in the household. That's what makes it significant. Uh, what's used in the household, uh, here's an example of typical Israelite pottery. It's a similar jug with a lug handle at the collar, but it's just one lug handle. Okay, Again, it's nothing that neither of them are fancy, but we've got a different type in a cultic context. Um, another popular type of Israelite pottery is the collared rim jar, big storage vessel. Sometimes they're three, 
feet tall and even bigger uh, to store oil, grain, whatever. Uh, so the point is, we have some exotic pottery at the site. Now, that's not proof it's a cultic site, but it's just a variation that, uh, one more little indicator that points in that direction. Um, some interesting features at Ebal, and we really don't know what these mean, uh, this is the handle, uh, a close-up of a handle of one of the pots, and you can't see it very good, but there are some vertical dashes inscribed uh, on the, these pieces. And these only appear in the Manassite vicinity. Uh, we don't have these anywhere else in Israel. Uh, and then we also have this peculiar little design that uh, Zertal and the team have coined the scholarly term a man's face <laughs> for that so but again it's peculiar to Manasseh and the, the, so the pieces uh, at Ebal share these features um, again it's not clear what they mean um, anybody want to guess what this little piece is down here that's a good guess I shouldn't have asked this question I'm going to embarrass <laughs> Anybody want to guess what this is? It's a phallus. Okay. But what do you notice about it? Yes, yes. It's a circumcised phallus. That's very significant because uh, uh, it... Now, Dr. Thomas suggested maybe it was used as a stopper. <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> honestly, I have no idea what this would be used for. <laughs> but but clearly, it is suggestive of Israelite ethnicity. You know, uh, it probably probably used uh, you know put on public display or uh, maybe it had some cultic function. We, we just really don't know, but, but it does uh, reinforce the idea of Israelite identity, uh, ethnic identity of the site. Okay, so that's very significant. Um, here's another little interesting uh, piece. <clears throat> uh, you can see it up here. It's what is being called the Ebal dice, and uh, I put Adam's hand there holding it so you can see how small it is. It is like a little dice. But if you look carefully, what do you see up here? Yeah, you see kind of a rectangular structure with uh, an outer border, a line going up the center, and then a horizontal surface in the back. What does it look like? kind of looks like the architecture of the central structure at Ebal uh, itself. Um, and that may sound like a leap, but um, similar ones have been found at Arad. Uh, there's a temple at Arad, an Israelite temple there. Uh, and uh, uh, this little dice, a little dice has been, been discovered there that appears to have a map of the uh, Arad fortress with the temple in the center uh, inscribed on it. So again, it's not clear what, what function it had. 
So yeah, maybe they sold souvenirs to those who visited the site. Yeah, it may have been some kind of tool for the priests that they used. Uh, I, I don't know. But um, anyway, uh, I, I think uh, it's clearly a worked object that has, you know, it's clearly an inscription on it, and it appear, appears to be a design, maybe, of the central structure. Uh, it's been studied in great depth by uh, an Israeli, young Israeli archaeologist named Dror Ben Yosef. He wrote about a 20-page article on this dice in the Israel Exploration Journal, uh, if you want to read more about it. Uh, but in any case, uh, Deuteronomy 27 verse 2 claims that when they built the Ebal site, they shellacked at least some of the stones with plaster. And that's very significant. In the Zinman Institute of Archaeology at the University of Haifa, they have a collection of the plaster recovered from the central structure at Ebal. At least parts of it were shellacked with plaster. All right. Um, what about the architecture? Well, here's another reconstruction by Judith Deckel. You can see a flat surface on the top, a ramp going up the center, uh, uh, two courtyards uh, on the side, and then a subsidiary ramp paralleling the main ramp that goes up to a ledge that goes around three sides of the structure. Okay, In general, the step structure uh, uh, echoes the altars described in Solomon's temple, uh, the altar that Ezekiel describes in the future temple, all right, and it looks like the Mish Mishnaic descriptions of the second temple altar. I'm going to skip ahead here to the time of the Mishnah and show you a drawing on the bottom from Mishnah Midot, okay? Uh, Mishnah Midot is a tractate that describes the appurtenances uh, of the temple in great detail, including the temple altar. And you can see in the drawing from the Midot, it has a flat surface on the top, a ramp ascending it, and then a secondary ramp going up to a ledge that goes around three sides. Okay? It's... Uh, I mean, you can see the similarities there uh, to the Iron Age structure. It's interesting, the uh, Mishnah Midot describes this secondary ledge. It calls it the Sovev, uh, and the purpose of the Sovev was uh, the priest could not go up and walk around on the offering surface. That was considered sacred. So the secondary ramp that led up to the sovave, the ledge that went around three sides, was so that the priest could go up there and walk around the width of the altar with a long rake or shovel and reach out and manipulate the offering on the surface of the altar. Okay, And again, that's exactly what we find at the Ebal structure. Uh, a, a ledge that goes up to what appears to be a, a, a secondary ramp that goes up to what appears to be a ledge that goes around three sides. Very, very interesting. All right. Uh, yeah, it's on on uh, three sides. It's not in the back. The back's just flush. Okay. <coughs> All right. Um, oh man, I'm running out of time. Bad. Uh, okay. 
An interesting feature of the, is it okay if I go five or ten more minutes? Okay. All right. Another interesting feature at the structure at Ebal is it's hollow on the inside. Okay. It's, uh, this is, uh, I did not have a wide angle lens with me, (laughs) and so I couldn't get an aerial view of the hollow center. But these are a couple of shots taken from different locations on the top, and you can see that the entire interior of that central structure is hollow. Um, And it was filled in the end, when it was excavated, it was filled with four layers of ash. It was filled completely all the way to the top with four layers of ash. It was very interesting because they were evenly poured. (laughs) It was as if somebody stood on the top and poured them so that these layers in the excavation, they're the same width all the way across. So four layers of uh, bone and ash remains. Um, they, they were all burned, and um, some have argued that this is evidence against identifying the structure as an altar, the idea that it was hollow. Okay. Uh, one person in particular is Anson Rainey, whom I mentioned a few minutes ago. He, uh, he saw this as proof that this could not be an altar. He said, altars don't have rooms in them. <laughs> he said, I stood in these rooms, and altars weren't built with rooms. So he believed this was an ancient house. Now, uh, we have several sets of instructions for how to build altars in the book of Exodus. Okay? I'm going to skip the first set because of the time. But the tabernacle, the instructions for the tabernacle altar. <coughs> All right, excuse me. All right, I'm flying through that. <coughs> excuse me. All right, the instructions for the tabernacle altar are given in Exodus 27, 1 through 8. And because of the time, we won't uh, turn there and read them. But if you were to read them, uh, number one, the text is uh, very difficult, and there's a lot of dispute over what the altar actually would have looked like and how it would have been constructed. It's uh, uh, complicated and not precisely understood. <clears throat> the dimensions are fairly clear. It's about seven and a half feet by uh, seven and a half by four point five. Uh, so that's fairly clear. Four horns crown the top corners. Okay. But what's so interesting is that there is something in the text of Exodus called the mikbar. And it's generally uh, explained as something like a strainer um, or a grate. Again, it's not entirely clear, but it is positioned down inside the tabernacle altar. Okay? It's also described as a ma'asheresheh nechoshet, or a network of bronze. So it's something like a grill uh, that was inside the altar that went across the width of it, okay? Now, we also, um, I think what we have, when we look carefully at the instructions for the design of that altar, I think we have a system of gratings inside the altar Um, we have one that's located about halfway up the altar and that's where you put the wood for the fire and then you go up further and you've got that secondary grating which was where the meat would be barbecued 
And the upper grating would allow for the oxygenation of the fire below, and it would allow ashes and fat to drip down as well. Okay, the question is, what are the implications of these descriptions in Exodus 27? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. the implication is this is a hollow structure, okay? Uh, it, it, why should we expect it to be rock-solid all the way through? That's not what the Bible describes. It describes a structure that's hollow. The first instructions we skipped uh, are for an altar designed simply by cobbling together rocks. That would be solid all the way through, but that's not what this is. Um, another interesting parallel from the Mishnah is that relates to this issue of the structure being full of ashes and so on. The, the tractate Midot describes something that it calls a tapuach, <laughs> which in modern Hebrew that literally means apple. All right? And it says that the Jewish leadership, as they would make the sacrifices, they would allow ashes to accumulate inside the structure and they would take something like a squeegee and push those to the center so that the ashes formed a tapuach, an apple, in the center of the altar. And in Mishnah Midot, they call that tapuach an adornment for the altar. They say, we want the ashes to accumulate, and we want to you know, shape it into this tapuach because that attests to the fact that, that it's in constant use, that Yahweh is uh, mediating for his people through the sacrificial system. So they saw the tupuach as an adornment, and they let the ashes fill up the structure. So it's very interesting. The text suggests that it's hollow and that they would uh, allow it to fill with ashes. Um, these are just some size comparisons. In terms of the architecture, uh, the ebal structure is very similar. Uh, to what we find in, in Solomon's temple altar, uh, Ezekiel's visionary altar, the tabernacle altar, the basic design, uh, a squarish structure, uh, tiered, tapering at the top, and so on. All right. Now, we'll wrap up very quickly here. When we went up to the Ebal site, uh, I mentioned at the beginning that it's located on the second slope down from the summit. It's not on the top of Mount Ebal. It's on the second slope. And you have the summit, and it kind of comes down into this uh, dip, and then that second summit peaks out like that, and it's kind of out here on this peak. So you can look out one direction and see the valley of Shechem, and then you look back and you see this huge valley sloping down before you then ascend toward the summit. And this is looking down toward the summit. The summit's up there, and here we are at, Mount, at the structure on Ebal. What do you see here? Animals. You see lots of space, right? Lots of space. And in Joshua 8, 30 through 35, it says, Kol Yisrael gathered around the altar. I mean, this is just a huge amphitheater around it on all sides. And as you walk around this, Zertal and the, and the survey team reported that when they first surveyed this site, the pottery just crunched under their feet all the way around the entire area. This was a place where people came 
regularly from about 1230 B.C. to about 1130 B.C., about 90 years. They were using this place regularly, convening here, gathering here. Uh, was it a pilgrimage site of some kind? You know, it's, it's, it wasn't just used one time. Uh, lots and lots of people gathered here. We still, even though the survey team had collected the pottery, as we wandered this area, we still saw uh, pottery scattered everywhere. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, th there were masses here. Um, here's the road leading up to the site. So there's the site, and then you can see this kind of dip, and over here it goes up to the summit. So you can see just the vast open spaces for gathering. Now I'll conclude... Um, with two slides here, when we, we spent all day at the site uh, photographing and looking and measuring and so on and so forth, and, um, uh, and it was all kind of a hair-raising experience. I told you I took my dad with me. He was about 65 or somewhere thereabouts at the time. And um, it was kind of funny because... I told him, I said, well, now, Dad, don't wander too far away. You know, stay here with us. But he, he likes to wander around and look at things. And so he took his camera, and he went way off, you know, past the wall that circles the side, and he was off looking. And all of a sudden, the Mu'edhin in the nearby village uh, started issuing the call to prayer. And, you know, it was, oh, la, 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 la. <laughs> and my dad thought a war cry was... I looked up and saw him running back toward us, so it's kind of funny. <clears throat> but um, at the end, of, so it was near the end of the day, about the time for afternoon prayer. Anyway, the Israeli soldiers we were with, they had seen us looking at the site all day, and they wanted to know, what's, what is this? What's so special about this site? And so Adam got out the topographical map and the site drawing and uh, showed them what we were looking at and began to tell them about this site and how he believed that it was some kind of a central cultic site used in Israel's earliest history where Israel's national, ethnic, religious identity began to be crystallized as they committed in covenant to one another so, so it has to do with national origins. And as he explained that to these guys, they pulled out their kippot and put them on their heads <laughs> and pulled their Bibles out of their rucksacks and began reading Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua 8. And they immediately understood that we are standing on holy ground. I mean, they felt that this site, they had come to encounter... Uh, 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 the Joshua's altar, you know, that, they, uh, that this site was key for their national identity and um, their national consciousness. So it was a really uh, fascinating way to wrap the day up. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, it really showed that if this site is the altar of Joshua 8, 30 through 35, it's paramount. Uh, I, I mean, it... Uh, Suggest that early Israel, you know, suggest so many things about early Israelite ethnicity, identity, religion. Um, so very profound. Well, I'm grateful for your attention. I've gone 12 minutes over. I apologize for that, but thank you so much for being here. I'm happy to answer any questions if 
if uh, anybody has some. Well, let's thank Dr. Hawkins. <laughs> thank you. And as we normally do with Q&A, uh, you know, we go to the jugular of an idea, <laughs> not the jugular of a person, okay? So, but if you do have a question, please identify yourself. Uh, also, identify your program. That would be nice. And uh, your, your question in brief format, please. My name is Rob Coleman. I'm an MAOT student. Is this on? Okay. I was just wondering, uh, generally speaking, how your scholarship has been received, and particularly your publication, what kind of feedback you've gotten. <coughs> and you told us about how Zertal was mm. responded mm. to, but since you've published your book, okay. what kind of response okay. have you Say received? Say your name one more time. Rob. Okay, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Okay, that's a great question. I, um, <laughs> when I first wrote the dis dissertation, I defended it in the winter of 2007, and of course I wanted to go right to publication, but Zertal asked me not to. Uh, he said he really wanted to get the final report out before I published it, and so I waited until 2012, uh, trying to give him time to do the report, and finally just said, it, you know, Adam, I've got to <laughs> go ahead and publish. Anyway, so I did with his blessing. Um, the report is in progress. Um, I, I don't know uh, uh, a date, but uh, it is in process. Um, but, I, but anyway, the point of all that was that I was very nervous um, putting it out. Uh, I was nervous about presenting in scholarly venues. Uh, I did give one presentation <laughs> at the American Schools of Oriental Research and had a guy from England, uh, Garth Gilmore, just stand up and, uh, you know, just, just take me to task. Um, um, uh, and Bill Deaver made some critical remarks. But, uh, um, but other than that, um, it's been very positive. Larry Herr, who's a, a, a ceramicist at, um, well, he just retired, but uh, very maybe the most respected ceramicist in archaeology today. He wrote a review of it in the Bulletin of the American Schools of Oriental Research, and I was very, well, I mean, I wasn't surprised, um, but I was pleased, I was delighted. At the end of his review, he said, uh, you've convinced me that Zertal's hypothesis is correct. And I felt like that was just a huge... Um, uh, because I'm unknown, <laughs> you know, still. Uh, but Larry Herr, I mean, he is the guru of, ceram of ceramics. Uh, he's the director of the Tel El Umeiri excavation, which is associated with a tribe of Reuben east of the Jordan River. Uh, very well known. And um, so that was just an incredibly positive review. And it's not that I want my ego stroked, but it goes to, um, you know, suggesting the viability of Zertal's theory. Uh, there have been a couple of other positive reviews. There was a really good review by, um, uh, I can't remember his name. I don't know him personally. He's a professor at um, Jerusalem University College, John Beck. Uh, and it was in the last issue or the next to the last issue of JETS. 
uh, and it was like a three-page review. So the reviews have been pretty good. Um, it's funny, though, because the site dates, uh, you know, liberals don't like it because they believe all of this history in the time of Joshua's fiction. Evangelicals have been reluctant to embrace it because um, it dates later than the uh, conservative date, for, for, you know. Uh, so Dan Block, in fact, um, wrote a negative re review of the book on that basis. He, he argued it didn't comport with the uh, early date for the Exodus conquest. So, so it's, it's mixed, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Ralph, for being here. Yes, sir. This is great and wonderful. Um, a couple of just clarifying questions I have interest here in having you speak on. Uh, the final remain, final remains, you said the four parts. Do you know whether it's right or left leg? Um, no, is it the right or the left leg, and has that been identified, or is that part of Zertal's report? And then I have a second. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd have to go back and check. I mean, it, they have identified them as four parts. I don't know. Okay. I, I'm not a um, faunal expert. I can identify sheep, goat remains, <laughs> but uh, because every, everything in this area is sheep, goat. Uh, but I, I couldn't say. That's I'd have fair. to bank check. Uh, no problem. And the other question is, what's the size of the um, the area that's to the north and slightly west, if I could tell with the orientation? What's the size of that, that enclosed area there? Can you give us an um, estimate? If I remember right, the wall uh, runs, it's survived for about 282 yards or feet. I'd have to double check, but it's, um, uh, I'm thinking it runs for about 282 yards, uh, as it's been described. I can't remember if it's intact fully around the entire site, but I, I think it more or less is. So it's a pretty substantial. Is that what you mean, the yeah. entire area? Is that the, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Is that the, uh, so there, you said there's a, a, a large in, encompassing wall, and then there's a divided middle part, mm -hmm. right? And I'm just interested in how much space there is between the altar inside. and that inside yeah. part, and whether there's mm -hmm. room there for a large tent. That's what I was kind of going after. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, for a tent. Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to check that. I don't know. The, 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 the wall inside, uh, in front of the structure, like I said, there was originally, of course, no structure there. It was some kind of like a fire pit about six feet wide. Um, with lots of detritus inside, you know, sacrifices, and a four-room house opposite that. It's actually the oldest known four-room house, um, again, dating to about 1230, um, but it's in really bad shape. Um, but, uh, and that, that was in use during that earliest phase from about 1230 to 1200, and then the four-room house was taken down and the area was paved over, and that interior dividing wall is there. So that seems to be like a Temenos wall to, you know, maybe, maybe to, to delineate the sacred from secular space inside or something like this. So. Other questions? Hi, I'm Greg Lamb. Greg Lamb in the New Testament uh, PhD program here at Southeastern. I certainly appreciate your talks. Very interesting, very insightful. 
Um, I interacted uh, some with Richard Hess's uh, thesis mm. on literacy in Iron Age. Mm. Did mm. you uncover anything that would either confirm or maybe refute his views? Um, well, Rick, Rick Hess was my external examiner <laughs> on this project. So, I mean, this was originally my dissertation, so he, he was the external examiner. Um, to my knowledge, there's, there's not been any written um, remains discovered unless there's some surprise that may come you know, in the report. I, I'm not aware of it. There is a lot of data I've not mentioned, um, like flint remains. There is a high concentration of flint remains um, associated with the central structure, uh, you know, which, again, suggests butchering. The uh, faunal remains um, are predominantly cut at the, the, the joint, and they're, they're scorched, so again, uh, cooking. Um, the faunal remains are concentrated inside the structure, so the, the faunal assemblage, is, is, is the, the percentage of uh, sacrificial appropriate animals is not that much higher than at other sites, and, and people have pointed to those percentages to, to say, well, that, you know, this, this is not a cultic site, but they're all in the central structure. <laughs> so the concentration suggests an exotic usage rather than an ordinary uh, usage. So the, there are lots of other pieces of data that I've skipped um, or not included, but to my knowledge, there's no, uh, no written data. Couple more questions. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, I was, as you were saying, mm -hmm. and uh, if you look at the structure that you showed there, it doesn't look like something that Joshua would have put up in Chapter Eight. You know, they're mm. still kind of right in the middle, of <laughs> coming in and. Uh, they probably met there, uh -huh. uh, and it would seem to me that, uh, you know, sort of like the synagogue in Capernaum was built probably over the, or, yeah. the one that Jesus uh, uh, was in, that, that it would be the spot. Right. And that the, the one that, uh, with the Ramses uh, scarab, even though it doesn't actually have his name on there. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, um, could be because you're you're just talking about like a hundred year period something, mm -hmm. and because it would take time. Uh, and if Joshua uh, constructed one later, it still would seem like it would take a while for the houses and other things. Uh, you you the way you were saying everything, it seems like there would be a time factor. Mm -hmm. You know, they're coming in as, as semi pastoralists and other things like that. They gradually get to the uh -huh. point that they would construct something like that, that <laughs> right. it would fit right about the time of Ramses II. Uh -huh. Whereas uh, it's kind of hard to see Ramses II, uh, you know, a time frame where that would be fitting with the, with the Exodus, because mm. you've got the 40 years in the wilderness to deal with, right. you've got Merneptus, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. Stila, and all that. Uh, but I, it seems to me that the scenario that you've given uh, would would fit pretty well, considering that structure to be one that would be uh, done later over uh, the top of the original. So you're suggesting uh, an early date for the Exodus and then a period of um, 
transients before they sedentarize, and this would be. Right. Uh, I, I see. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a, of course, a uh, very controversial question. <clears throat> um, and as I noted a few minutes ago, for those of you who may not be aware of the traditional uh, early date of the Exodus based on 1 Kings 6.1, which says um, uh, the Israelites came out, uh, Solomon began building the temple 480 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And we know it says he began building the temple in his fourth regnal year. We know that was 966 B.C. So if you count back 480 years, that puts the date of the Exodus at 1446. So um, then you add the uh, um, uh, 40 years of wandering, and you get a conquest date of about 1400 or something like that. Uh, and um, <clears throat> so this structure uh, dates to the latter uh, quarter of the 13th century. <laughs> so for many evangelicals, uh, this has been problematic. And again, that's why Dan Block said he couldn't accept that this may have been, uh, that this structure may be associated with Joshua. Uh, and say your name again? Uh, Fred. Okay, and Fred, Fred is suggesting maybe there was an earlier structure that hasn't survived, or maybe it was disassembled and this was built later. Is that yeah, my, I think my over it. Oh, we're over it. I mean, I, I, I think you found the spot. I, uh, I, I yeah. think it's, I don't, mm -hmm. uh, the thing I don't understand is why uh, the people in Israel are so opposed to having the Bible be to have oh. anything at <laughs> yeah. all that, that yeah. gives some kind yeah. of credence. Well, uh, yeah, it's it's certainly possible, you know, I have tended to come down on a later dating, so I, I'm comfortable, um, I would be comfortable uh, from a scientific perspective, I would say this is an Israelite site, so I think we can identify the ethnicity, and secondly, I would say it's cultic, so those would be my scientific statements. On a personal level, I'm comfortable associating this with Joshua. <laughs> uh, that's that's a personal faith statement, you know. But um, but it's certainly not impossible that there may have been an early structure. Um, there is a guy. Oh man, what is his name? Do you ever do this? You just draw a blank, you know? Gosh, I can't think. It'll come to me after we all go our separate ways. Uh, but there's a brilliant guy whose name I can't remember, and he did a study a few years ago. Uh, showing how major, huge things like the, the uh, uh, Norman Conquest, and I mean huge things that have occurred that have left no archaeological evidence. And, and um, he relates it, of course. He's interested in the Conquest and the whole issue. Um, I just can't think of the guy's name. But no, uh, uh, I just can't think of it. Anyway, um, it, 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 I think that's certainly true. I mean, it's you know we're talking about a a structure that would be, you know, over uh, three thousand years old. I mean, and, and uh, people, farmers. I mean, we see this all the time. Farmers will go in and take stones and build a new wall for their vineyard. <laughs> you know, so and we, we in archaeology we call it, we'll say that the site's been robbed out. You know, we'll have a big parts of it that have been robbed out. Uh, for modern usage, the stones pulled out. 
so sure why it's certainly possible but 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 I mean we don't have such a structure under the iron age one structure is that uh, six foot diameter r ring uh, that was clearly used for offering uh, some kind of a structure associated with it that did not survive. It was disassembled. Uh, one wall of it survived and is inside the Iron Age 1 structure. So it's part of that earlier structure, but we don't know what it was. And then there was the four-room house adjacent to it. That late bronze structure is on bedrock. So if there was an earlier structure... Yeah, if there was an earlier structure... I mean, I, I, maybe maybe it was disassembled, or um, or maybe it was in another location, you know. Um, and there wouldn't be any problem with that. I mean, as this we'll other be too far away. Yeah. Because I think I really like mm -hmm. the idea of the yeah. view of the valley being around mm -hmm. it, where everybody could gather. Yeah. One thing, um, this site though, whoever used it, I think it was the Israelites, but whoever used it clearly regarded it as cultic. And the fact that they erected the cairn over it um, suggests that because they viewed it as cultic, they buried it to put it out of usage, to decommission it. Mm -hmm. And we know this phenomena from Hittite society. They would always bury cultic sites when they went out of usage. Uh, and we see this in other locations yeah, as go well. Back to mm, yeah, yeah. So I think that's what happened here. This was clearly a cultic site, and it was decommissioned by erecting the cairn over it. So it was, so it was highly regarded and viewed as sacred. <laughs> Any others? Hi. Uh, thank you. My name is Todd. Uh, I'm in the Old Testament faculty here. Right. Um, uh, I'm curious. I'm, I'm not an expert in archaeology, but I, I in in I've never seen before uh, the what you're calling installations, uh, mm. where they have the the pottery with the bones and ashes inside. Mm. Is that a feature that is found in other altar sites? Oh, hmm. You know, I I don't recall seeing it anywhere either. I mean, this site is uh, really anomalous. I mean, the mm. structure, <laughs> and that that's been one of the reasons it's been so controversial. You know, the, the altar described in Exodus 27 is seven and a half feet. It's not 32, it's not 27 by 32. You know, so this far exceeds those dimensions. Um, I mean, there's just no parallel for it. Um, but if I were to describe what we have at Ebal, I believe it's a lithic version of what's described in Exodus 27. I think, it, and it's built on a monumental scale. Um, but yeah, I don't know of any parallel for these kinds of installations. There may be some, but I'm just, uh, I'm, I don't know. It, 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 I'm thinking of Dan, Jonathan Greer's new book. I mean, he would certainly, but I can't remember. <laughs> I, I don't recall that he describes them there. Yeah. So if there are some, I'm not familiar with them. Yeah. Yes. Let me just follow up with that. I'm just curious if there's evidence there, or other places where there would be um, evidence of basically Israelite syncretism, with kind of like what you had in Dan, but in the Judges, that whole period where worshiping high places were maybe a, originally a sacred site that was then turned into something else, especially with the phallic symbol, things like that. Is that a common symbol? Or, I mean, a common thing found in other sites or other 
syncretistic elements. Syncretistic elements between Yahwist mm. worship of Yahweh and other. Yeah. Well, th- this is one of the reasons Ebal is so interesting. Is it, it? It appears to be a central structure. Uh, it, it intends to serve the purpose of, uh, purposes of a central structure in. Uh, in archaeology, there's a phenomenon called uh, enclosed nomadism. It's where a nomadic populace will have a central location that ties them to the land. So it's often referred to as land-tied nomadism. And I think that's what we have at Ebal. This seems to be a site that, um, uh, again, people come to uh, from from far-flung locations. I mean, again, the pottery spread all over the vicinity. They camped here. (laughs) They watched something happening on this structure within the walls that encircled this structure. Um, So I I think it serves that centralized structure. Uh, In the development of monotheism, uh, like in Bill Arnold's new introduction to the Old Testament, he talks about how... um, centralization serves to preclude other expressions of religion so it, it would it would uh, facilitate the ex- exclusion of other expressions of worship and I think that's something we see here there's it, it seems to serve this uh, purpose of uh, of enclosed nomadism it's interesting there's also a series of um, sites the closest one is just a stone's throw from the Jordan River, and they're kind of uh, well. I don't want to get into that because it's a whole nother lecture. But there's a series of sites that's the first one is located over close to the Jordan, and then they progress through the eastern desert. And the westernmost site is the Ebal site, and they all have the same design, and they have. Uh, a cairn in the southern end. This one's been excavated. The one closest to the Jordan River is a site called Badada Shab. The cairn there was excavated, and it also covered uh, what the excavator calls a bama. I mean, it's an altar, but it's on a much smaller scale. Probably the cairns at the other sites uh, uh, covered bama or bamot, and so it looks like there's a, pr- a movement. Uh, and I think that what we may have at these sites is the the Mishkan itinerating from east to west as the Israelite people migrate into the land of Canaan. I have a whole chapter on this in How Israel Became a People. Um, but I have no idea what you even asked me. I'm rambling. <laughs> Did I get anywhere close to... <laughs> Oh, well, okay, well, what I was saying was that each of these sites seems to serve that purpose. It's, it's a, uh, a central location for a mass of people. And uh, uh, the, the Badada Shab, the excavation report, was published a few years ago. It's the same way as Ebal. There's no expression of, of um, you know, any syncretistic element there. It seems to be the singular... Um, religious identity, singular religious expression, you know, whatever that is, if it's Israelite, you know. You guys ask great questions.